My name is Clancy, and I am an alcoholic. <clears throat> In addition now to our top-notch sound system, we have spared no expense and or inconvenience to set up a gasoline motor that will run over in that corner. If you can still hear, raise your hand and we'll do something else. I see the birds are warming up back there for their... Most of us have that feeling, though. Go ahead, birdie. Everybody else does. <laughs> I uh, personally would like to extend my thanks to the to the people I have known down here for many years, particularly people who I have uh, been closer to because we've been thrown in conjunction more often. I want to thank uh, Bob P. for coming to the airport and meeting us, and uh, his charming wife, who's always been gracious over the years, and to uh, Frank H., who just made some announcements, and his charming wife for being so, always so pleasant to us and to me. I want to extend a special thank you to my hosts, the uh, Clarys, who have been, who have given me a room of my very own and, and don't come in to see what I'm doing to it. It looks like a mess, but I know where everything is. Under those shorts are my socks, and one of my shoes is in that drawer, unless you could really know it, you'd look like kind of a mess, but it really isn't. But I want to thank all of you. It's always a ple pleasure to see many of you. And following along with the general theme of the conference, as part of my introduction, I'd like to tell my story from beginning to end. <laughs> I was born in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. <laughs> no, I, uh, only, only five of you came here to hear me this morning, and we've been outvoted, so I'm going to hear Hal. Our speaker this morning <coughs> is a, uh, is a very distinguished man. I have known him for some time. He has visited our group. He has not yet been asked to speak at our group, but, uh, we like to try him out on the road. <laughs> He has a uh, distinguished career for many years. Hal was a uh, member of the Air Force, an officer in the Air Force. And one time, I know one of his fantasies that I that he doesn't know I know. At one time, he worked it out, and if the right 833 people would drop dead, he would become chief of staff. Well, that isn't as much fun as the fantasies Roz has, but they're 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 good. <laughs> I 
He is uh, now a member of the State Department in Washington, travels to the State Department. He is a doctor of philosophy, and certain of us people from small towns in the Midwest, it's always a, a deep and abiding privilege to see brilliant and educated men come to our program and add a luster of intellectual approval to it. <laughs> I, uh, in introducing Hal this morning, seriously, I would like to say that I, I am, some of you know that once upon a time, through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, I was on the faculty at the University of Texas at El Paso. And one of the things that happened while we were there, while I was there briefly, is at that time we had a, a geneticist who worked very much on the on the inner workings of bodies and how to crossbreed bodies. And, uh, and one day in 1950, early 1956, just before I was sent to Big Spring, this, uh, I remember he came out of his laboratory and he was so thrilled on the campus. He said, I have done it! I have done it! And we said, what is it, doctor? He said, I have done something which science claims is impossible. I have crossbred two different species. And we rushed in, and on the table was an enormous thing, about seven feet long, and it had orange stripes and black stripes, and was covered with, with feathers, and had enormous claws. And we said, of course, what is it, doctor? What is it? And there was lightning flashing, thundering outside. Funny thing. And he said, I have crossbred a tiger and a parrot. And I have a new species entirely. And of course I said to him, doctor, what do you call it? He said, I have not named it yet, but I'll tell you this. When he prepares to speak, I believe I'll listen. And I find myself much that same position this morning. I don't know what to call him, but when he begins to speak, I believe I'll be prepared to listen. Alan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Clancy. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And it is a beautiful morning, and I see a beautiful bunch of people in front of me. I'd like to thank Frank and the committee for the privilege and the pleasure of being back in Midland and participating in this beautiful conference. I was privileged to be here at the first midwinter six years ago. And that was a big one, and I can see over the years it's getting bigger and better than ever. I like this Midland AA. You've really got something out here. Your trustee and Don and I were talking last night. We agreed it's the same 12 steps and the same program, but you put a little different fringe around it out here in Midland. Your hospitality, generous, cordial, and warm, 
is something I'll never forget. And of course, what it is is love, and that's the basis of our beautiful program. And you seem to know the meaning of the word love out here. It is beautiful. A lot of things I like about your AA, I like the way you count sobriety out here. <clears throat> if you've ever listened to AAs talking about their sobriety, I think you'll <clears throat> agree that someone who says, for instance, he completed six years in June, you ask him in the middle of July how long he's been sober, <clears throat> he will never say, I completed six years last month. You'll say, I have seven years next June. They're always grabbing out that extra 11 months. <clears throat> we thought we had an improvement on that in the Washington area. There, for instance, if I have, say, for instance, if I complete 10 years yesterday, and you ask me this morning how long I've been sober, I will tell you, well, I'm in my 11th year. Only one day, but I'm in my 11th year. But you Texans have even improved on that. Thursday afternoon I was with Frank, <coughs> and the subject of sobriety came up, and Frank very casually mentioned he'd been sober ten odd years. <coughs> that impressed me, because ten odd, I thought, ten plus a few odd years, that could be thirteen, fifteen, seventeen, might even be nineteen years. <coughs> and I was really impressed. I talked to Bob that night. And Bob said, yes, Frank had completed ten years just less than three weeks ago. <laughs> ten odd years. But that's a good way to count. I like that, and I may use it myself. It has been a beautiful, beautiful conference up until now. Now, let's look back. Those of you who were fortunate enough to be here Thursday night, <clears throat> we're privileged to hear Wes and Clancy. And that was indeed a beautiful meeting, and those of us who were lucky to be there saw our friend Joe Cleary perform a miracle, another AA miracle. He contained that meeting, he wrapped it up in one hour and four minutes. And considering the fact that Clancy was the second speaker, that was a miracle, believe me. <laughs> and then Friday, we had shared, Maurice shared his experience with us and all those fantasies. And Maurice proved that he is willing to go to any lengths. That dog detail that Clancy had him on proved that once and for all. And then late that night, our friend Homer chaired that chairman speak meeting. And there again was another fine evening. And Clancy once and for all, it was late in the evening, he proved beyond any reasonable doubt his humility by speaking for one minute and thirty-five seconds, <clears throat> and that really set a record. However, I did hear some people, some wag after the meeting was over, said, I've been hearing Clancy for ten years, and that's the finest talk he ever made. Then <clears throat> yesterday morning, we had that beautiful old girl, Sally, that beautiful Al-Anon. And I always listen to these Al-Anons because they teach me a lot. They talk about how they use this program to solve the problems of living, <clears throat> and that's something I have. I haven't had a drinking problem in a long time, but I have a living problem. 
And I listen to these Alamans and I learn a lot. I never miss the Alamon talk. And Sally, being a fine Alamon, she gave her husband equal time. So we heard from Keith and how booze had interfered with a beautiful sports career. And Keith mentioned the fact that he the slogan we have about KISS, keep it simple, stupid, had meant a lot to him. And this reminded me of the collateral to KISS that we have back east. I'm sure you've heard of it out here. The collateral statement that goes along with KISS, may you always stand serene. I'll repeat that one more time. The collateral statement to KISS, keep it simple, stupid, may you always stand serene. Then that afternoon we heard Nell sharing her experiences and her close relationship with Bill. I had the pleasure of meeting Bill on six or seven occasions over the years, but I never got to know him. But through Nell sharing with us her closeness, I feel I've gotten to know Bill. Then last night, beautiful Rosin got up here and laid it on the line. She told it like it was, how <clears throat> her, and it was a brilliant career, had gone to the dogs, but through this beautiful program, the power of AA recovery, and she gave us a beautiful message indeed. So that brings us up to this morning. As I said, it's been a beautiful conference up until now. But there's a thing called the law of averages. And that's what it is, the law of averages. You can't beat it. And if you've attended many conferences, many weekends, they always select their speakers pretty carefully. They're usually high class, high stop, but there's always one, or usually one, not quite up to the standards of the others. You walk away saying, well, that was a good church basement AA talk, but not up to standards of the rest of the conference. And after these brilliant speakers we've had up to this morning, I'm afraid now you're faced with the law of averages, and I'm your law of averages speaker. I was over in the hospitality room this morning, and some friend came up and said, aren't you a little nervous? <clears throat> and I said, yes, I always get a little nervous before I speak. But once I get on the podium and look out and see all those friendly faces, all those wonderful people, I feel pretty good. Because actually, I don't have anything to be nervous about. Because as I stand here before you, I know what I'm going to say for the next few minutes. But you people out there, you don't know what I'm going to say. If anybody should be nervous, it's you, not me. <laughs> but you don't look too nervous, so I guess we'll get on with the meeting. My name is Hal Marley. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. I said I'm a grateful alcoholic because I've got a lot to be grateful for. I came in this program in New York City some ten odd years ago. Where's Frank? <clears throat> I was still in Air Force uniform. They told me to leave my brains, if I had any left on the outside, to come in and sit on that front row keep my ears open and my mouth shut and listen and listen and listen. Thank God I did what they told me. I've done a lot of listening and I've done a lot of learning because I stay teachable. 
I learn something at every AA meeting I go to, either a new learning, an old learning reinforced, or what I call a negative learning. I learn what not to do if I want to stay sober. One of the first things they told me was to keep an attitude of gratitude. They told me to live an attitude of gratitude. But through Alcoholics Anonymous, I was sober, I was restored to the human race, and I had a lot to be grateful for. And I realized this, and I've tried to live that, to live an attitude of gratitude, because I got a lot to be grateful for. <clears throat> they told me if I had a heart filled with gratitude, there wouldn't be any room in my heart or my life for anger, fear, guilt, remorse, self-pity, depressions, resentments, all those things that drive an alcoholic back in the bottle. And I've tried to remember this, because I said I've got a lot to be grateful for. <clears throat> and I remember from whence I came, and I don't want to go back there. <clears throat> the, don't misunderstand me, I don't dwell on the past. I've gotten rid of all that remorse and guilt through steps four, five, eight, and nine. And one of the fourteen promises tells me that I will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. So I take a look in that rearview mirror every so often just to remind myself from whence I came. I don't want to forget. As I said I got a lot to be grateful for, so I try to live this attitude of gratitude. And I started this morning, as I start every day of my life, as soon as I wake up, I get on my knees beside my bed and thank the God of my understanding for the three, what I call the three basics. No matter what kind of day it is, where, when, or what, I have three things, the minute I wake up, three things I'm grateful for. Number one, I'm alive. Number two, I'm sober. And number three, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I figure with those three things going for me, I'm in pretty good shape. Not just to cope and put up with another day, but to live and thoroughly enjoy another 24 hours of the AA way of life. Because that's what it is for me, a way of life. AA is not something I joined. It's something I live. As I stand before you this morning, I never forget for one second that what little I am and what little I have is only by the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're supposed to talk about booze while we're up here, so I'd like to talk about booze for a while. I became acquainted with this disease at a very early age because my father was a practicing alcoholic, and my earliest memories are of his fight against booze. He was a druggist who lived down in the mountains of North Carolina, and I can remember him coming home and telling mother that found some new medicine. He thought this medicine would help him with his problem, and it would help him for a while, but not for long. And I can remember him disappearing, going away for weeks sometimes a month, and Mother would tell us that Dad had worked too hard, his nerves were shot, and he'd gone away for a rest cure. 
I found out later he was down at the Keeley Institute down in Greensboro, and he would come back from these cures, and he was cured temporarily, but a question of time till he was back in the bottle. And his father, my grandfather, was a retired minister, and I can remember him coming into our home many, many evenings, and he and mother and dad would go in the bedroom and kneel in prayer, asking God to help my dad in his fight against booze. And this didn't work either. Thanks to the booze, the business went into bankruptcy, the creditors moved in into receivership, and they took everything we had in terms of material things. We had lost our beautiful big home up on top of the hill and had to move to a small rented frame house on the other side of town. And I saw my father die shortly thereafter, a practicing alcoholic. So I knew firsthand what booze could do to a man, and I remember telling Mother shortly after we buried Dad, Mother, there's one thing you don't ever have to worry about as far as I'm concerned, and that is alcohol. I saw it kill my father. And she didn't have to worry, and I didn't have to worry for many, many years. I was one of those I consider lucky alcoholics. I drank for many years. <clears throat> I had my first drink at Columbia University in 1933. First drink of alcohol, I worked my way through Columbia leading a dance orchestra. As you all know, booze and the dance band business goes hand in hand. I had my first drink at Columbia, freshman, 1933. Thanks to the orchestra, we went to Europe every summer. I had my first drink of champagne in Paris in the summer of 34. My first drink of vodka in Leningrad, Russia in 1935. And booze became the basic ingredient in gracious living, and I loved it, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. And those were wonderful days. Talking to Maurice the other night, we compared notes. And Maurice was hanging out in the same bar as I was. He was writing stories, I think, for the Post about Club 18, Jack White there on 52nd Street, the Onyx and the famous door. <clears throat> and I didn't think I couldn't go to bed at night unless I'd been down to 52nd Street. And those were beautiful, wonderful days, and I wouldn't have missed a drink of it. But I won't bore you with the details of my good drinking. This went on for 22 years. I drank for 32 years in all, but the first 22 were wonderful. For the first 22 years, I had fun with booze. Then I crossed that line into alcoholic drinking, and for the next 10 years, booze had fun with me. And this changeover occurred for me, as I look back on it, in Warsaw, Poland, in 1955, where I was the air attaché at the United States Embassy. This was the height of the Cold War, 1955-58. It's a very interesting assignment, one of the most interesting assignments I had in my years in the Air Force. But this is where, after drinking too much, too long, I became, became dependent upon alcohol, I became addicted to alcohol, and in my opinion I became an alcoholic. Now, I may have been born an alcoholic if it's hereditary, because as I told you, my father died an alcoholic. I may have been an alcoholic from the first drink, I'm not concerned, and that's immaterial. I say I became an alcoholic in Warsaw because this is where I lost my choice. Up until then, I drank because I wanted to drink with nice people in nice places around the world. 
And occasionally I didn't want to drink, and occasionally I would say, no, thank you. I drank because I wanted to drink. But here in Warsaw, I suddenly realized I had lost that choice. I had to drink to live. I had to drink to function. <clears throat> here I found the delight of that drink in the morning. I'd never drank in the morning regularly before. And here I found that answer, that panacea. <clears throat> and I had a wonderful concoction. Being the air attaché, the Air Force goes first class. We had a beautiful 16-room villa on the banks of the Vistula with five live-in servants. And while my wife was having breakfast served in bed, every morning I would slip into the pantry and in a pre-cooled goblet I'd stash in the fridge the night before. I never forgot this. First things first. Stash that in the fridge the night before so it could be pre-cooled. I was one of those drunks that liked everything real, real cold. And in this pre-cooled 16-ounce goblet, I would pour a concoction of one-third orange juice, also pre-cooled, no ice to dilute it, one-third orange juice, one-third vodka, and one-third champagne. And this made a beautiful way to start the day. This would calm those butterflies. This would stop those nerve ends from tingling. This would make me well. And that's what I had to do, get well every morning. Now, we have a slogan in AA that says, Don't analyze, utilize. As has been pointed out, that exhortation in itself could only result from analysis, but I won't go into that. We have this slogan anyway, and I haven't tried to analyze the program. I know how it works. I've read chapter 5. I know how it works for me. It works by the grace of God. At any rate, I have taken the privilege of analyzing this drink, because it was a beautiful way to live. As you all know, the doctors say you got to have breakfast in the morning. It's the basic meal of the day. You should have a big, strong breakfast to fortify you. You need the vitamins. And I was one of those drunks that couldn't stand solid food in the morning. The thought of it was nauseating. But that orange juice was filled with those vitamins, so that fulfilled the requirement for breakfast. So that took care of that item. Check that item off the list. And those of you who had these nerve ends tingling and those butterflies jumping up and down the stomach. No, you've got to have a shot of alcohol in there to quiet things down, to get well, to get that stomach settled. So that 150-proof Polish vodka fulfilled the requirements for that area. And that champagne fulfilled that snob requirement that most alcoholics have, at least this one has. So that was a beautiful way to start the day, get over to the office. Had to have a drink at 10.30 before I went in to see the ambassador at the morning staff meeting. And before I realized I was drinking around the clock, I conned the Air Force into sending me a 16-cubic-foot Frigidaire for my office. I told them I needed a repository of constant temperature for my film supplies. You can imagine how much of that 16-cubic-foot was taken up with film supplies, maybe one foot. You know what was in the rest of it. So I had perfect privacy drink in my office. No one, not even the ambassador, could come to my office unless he'd been cleared by the Marine guards on the first floor. My mission was top secret, of course, intelligent. And no matter who it was, the Marine guard would call upstairs around the third floor and it took at least four or five minutes to climb those stairs. So no matter who it was, I had three or four minutes to get away the booze off my desk and hide it. As a result, I drank around the clock in my office while I was filling out reports and doing all the paperwork. And before I realized it, drinking around the clock every waking hour. 
the end of the first year, my daughter came home from school where she'd been in Switzerland. She said, Dad, there's something that's happened to you. You're not the same person left Washington a year ago. And what has happened is a trait not uncommon among practicing alcoholics. The Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personality changed. Now, to the outside world, everything was going great. The ambassador was happy. The attaché corps was happy and more so. The chief of staff intelligence was sending me an occasional letter, congratulations on your outstanding intelligence reports. Everything was great on the outside. But to my wife and daughter, the two people I love more than anything else in this world, I had become the most egotistical, selfish, willful so-and-so you could possibly imagine. My behavior bore toward them bordered on the sadistic. Verbal violence at its worst, no physical violence, but verbal violence at its worst. And those of you who've been through this, I think you'll agree, verbal violence can be worse than physical violence. Broken bones mend, black eyes go away, but a mean, cruel statement made to someone you love, you can't rub it out, you can't take it back. And I couldn't understand why I was saying these things to these two people that I love. I couldn't blame it on a blackout because I realized I was in a fog, of course, most of the time. But I realized what I was saying. I remembered these things the next day. Since I've been in the fellowship, this and other things have cleared up. I thought I loved those two people more than anything else in this world. But as a practicing alcoholic, I love that bottle of booze more than anything else in this world. And that bottle of booze came first. My poor wife and daughter came in a very poor second and third. And what I was doing was devoting what few talents I had to keep this projection of the successful air attaché before the public, before the attaché corps, before the ambassador, before the Pentagon. And I didn't have time to waste it if my small talent for my wife and daughter because they knew I was a boozer. The rest of the world didn't know. My wife and daughter saw me drinking in the morning. They saw me drinking on the way back and forth to parties. We always kept, my chauffeur had one rule, always keep a bottle of vodka, a bottle of scotch, and a bottle of bourbon in the glove compartment at all times. I drank on the way to parties, home from parties, continuously, and my wife and daughter knew it. They knew I was a boozer, and I knew they knew, so I didn't waste my time with them. Devoted what little effort, what little talents I had to keeping this projection of the successful air attaché before the public. This went on for three years. It was a hardship post, two years supposedly. I extended because I've never had it so good materially, or I never will have it that good again. Running around the world on that green diplomatic passport, living on those black market quotas there in Poland, buying everything we wanted, anything we wanted. This went on for three years, back to the States in 58. And here, on a debriefing tour that all Iron Curtain attaches had to go through with, <clears throat> where we were being, I was being questioned by these hot rock civilian intelligence analysts at CIA and states and all the military departments. And I had to be sharp because I was supposed to be an expert. I would spent three years in Poland, and I was supposed to be an expert on the Polish Air Force and the Soviet Air Force in Poland. At that time, there were 10 Soviet squadrons there with the latest airplanes. We could get information there that the attaches in Russia couldn't get. At any rate, I had to be sharp when I answered these questions, so naturally, 
for any alcoholic to be sharp, he's got to have some booze inside of him. <clears throat> so here I started drinking out of a bottle I carried around with me in an attaché case, labeled top secret for obvious reasons. <clears throat> and I would get up in the morning, have a couple shots of booze out of this bottle, off to the first briefing. After the briefing was over, excuse me, gentlemen, I have to go to the little boy's room. My attaché case contains classified material. I have to take it with me. Off to the john, sit down, a couple shots of booze, back for the next meeting, and so on throughout the day. I get back to the hotel or BOQ where I was staying that night and have to face the cold, hard facts that I had consumed one quart of booze out of that attaché case plus the normal social drinks at lunch and dinner. And in this moment of lucidity, I did accept the fact this was a little beyond the realm of social drinking. What to do? Could I be becoming an alcoholic? Horrible thought. God forbid. Because I remembered that Jack Alexander article in March of 1941. I was a second lieutenant in the horse cavalry at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. We were a very snobbish outfit. We dressed for dinner every night, always cocktails at 5.30 before we for dinner. And I remember someone bringing that article in. We are reading it over the bar during the cocktail hour. And I remember talking about those poor drunks. And there I was, 17 years later, facing, could I be one of those horrible thoughts? And I did the only thing I knew to do to prove I wasn't an alcoholic. I stopped drinking. Because I knew that if I could stop drinking, it would prove to me, to my wife and daughter, that I was not an alcoholic. And I stopped cold. I'd been drinking over a quart of booze a day for years and years and years, and I stopped cold. Why I didn't have any withdrawal, I do not know. The psychiatrist once told me when I talked to him about it that I was so intent on proving that I wasn't an alcoholic, I was motivated. I had an incentive. I was so busy proving this that the withdrawal didn't bother me. Anyway, I stopped cold turkey for eight months. My next assignment was San Francisco, beautiful Hamilton Air Force Base, and for eight months not a drop. Lost 20 pounds of fat I'd picked up in Europe, never felt better physically in my life. Went back to church. There'd been no open churches in Warsaw, hadn't been to church in three years. Went back to church paying lip service to a God I did not understand. And I was pretty sure he didn't understand me. But paying lip service, going through the motions, doing a good job at the office, the boss was saying nice things every once in a while. And I was physically dry. I had stopped drinking. But ladies and gentlemen, I was the most bored, sober person in the state of California. Friends would come through and take them on the grand tour, diplomats we'd met in Europe into San Francisco and up to the top of the mark, enjoying that beautiful vista of San Francisco Bay, and they were raising the happy glass, posting that beautiful view. And there I was, stuck with a Coca-Cola or ginger ale, trying to be charming. And I hated those people. I hated the people at the officers' club on Saturday night, a big party, dancing, having fun, drinking. And there I was, on the wagon. But I kept this up for eight months. And I was physically sober, ladies and gentlemen, but it was sobriety without meaning, without purpose, without direction. Sobriety without AA, 
and it wasn't enough for me. <clears throat> Went back to controlled drinking. I won't bore you with the details of that. This was the year the California wineries came out with that beautiful concoction called Thunderbird. <clears throat> that was my introduction to social drinking, by a Thunderbird. Needless to say, the Thunderbird lasted about, I think it was six weeks before I was back on the hard stuff, drinking more than I had been when I went on the wagon eight months previous, proving to myself without realizing it the progressiveness of this disease. Sobered up again in 60 when the Air Force sent me back to Randolph to get checked out in jets, and all the old pilots, World War II, back to get checked out. Here again, I had a reason to stay sober, six weeks down there for jet training. Got my jet ticket back to California. It didn't take me very long to rationalize that I could fly those jets, certainly with more confidence, and I thought more precision, with a few shots of booze under my belt. <clears throat> and it seemed to work. And before long, I was drinking around the clock again seven days a week. And my wife and daughter called me in one day and said, look, we don't mind you drinking during the week, but Sunday morning, when we go to church, no more boozing or we're not going to church with you. And what had happened, my boss, a two-star general, was very active in the church. He was a Sunday school teacher, and he was there every Sunday morning at the 11 o'clock service, Protestant service. <clears throat> and you can believe all the smart senior officers who were Protestants were there at the church service with him, because we knew who made out our efficiency report. So with the Marlies were there sitting at the pew opposite General Steve every Sunday morning. We'd go in there about a quarter of eleven. There my wife and daughter on either side, prim and proper. And there I was with that red bloated face, with that cold alcoholic sweat dripping off. The collars already welted as a quarter of eleven, already welted. And seeing when we sat down, the people would ooze away from us like this. My wife and daughter said, no more boozing on Sunday, we're not going to church. So there's a horrible dilemma we had to face, but alcoholics can usually figure out something. In these days, the Air Force required us to fly eight hours a month. So I let my wife and daughter know, I said, too busy at the office to fly during the week, I have to do my flying on Sunday, my pay flying. So what I would do is put them off to church around 10.30, get them off where they belong, and I could relax in the house, have a few shots of booze under my belt, get my nerves in, settle down, go down to the flight line, check out a little T-33, a little single-engine jet trainer, climb up to 40,000 feet over San Francisco Bay, call in the tower, get a local clearance, pull back that oxygen mask, pull out that little flask of Jack Daniels Black Label, that sipping whiskey and do Lazy Eights, turn on KABL, the San Francisco Good Music Station, and do Lazy Eights over beautiful San Francisco Bay. And that was a lovely way to spend Sunday morning, believe me. And I would look down 40,000 feet below, and I felt so sorry for those poor, I called them peasants. Later in the day, I learned to call them earth people. I don't like that either. Anyway, I did feel sorry for those peasants down there 40,000 feet below, because they were existing, and I was living. And it was a beautiful way to spend Sunday morning. And everything worked out fine because <clears throat> my wife and daughter were in church where they belonged. They were happy. The good Lord knew why I wasn't in church. He knew I had to get flying time in every month. The Air Force was happy they got 45 minutes logged on Form 5 every month. So everything worked out fine. 
This continued for three more years. We came back east. 1961, and here was my day. Today I'm afraid many of you know. Wake up at 4 or 5, 6 o'clock. Got to have a drink. Just can't face the day without a drink. The champagne days were over. Down to orange juice and vodka. And that first drink wouldn't stay down. I think it was psychological with me. It didn't get past the Adam's apple. Just the taste of it. Dashed to the bathroom. Up Chuck. And I had developed a weak left nostril. And every morning when I up Chuck, this left nostril would give away and have a horrendous nosebleed gushing out this side. And I can remember, and I don't want to forget it, sitting on the corner of that bed with that second drink in my hand. I'd stuff some tissue up this nostril and hold this like this to keep the blood from flowing, trying to get that vodka and orange juice down like this, and praying, ladies and gentlemen, a sincere prayer as I knew how to make, asking God to help me get that booze in my system so I could get well enough to get in that uniform to go over to Fort McNair, where I was a member of the faculty at the National War College, to do my job, to get that paycheck, to pick up the tab for that fancy sorority my daughter was living in at the University of California, and to pay for those nice clothes my wife liked to wear. And I thought by picking up the tab I was doing my share. Little did I know my daughter would have moved out of that fancy sorority and moved in the dormitory in five minutes. My wife had to get him up those Bergdorf Goodman clothes for a sober husband and a sober father. I couldn't give them sobriety, but I could pick up the tab, and I sincerely thought I was doing my share. And occasionally my wife and daughter would get me into the subject of my drinking, and I couldn't avoid it. And I'd give them that old alcoholic wheeze about, now wait a face it, I may be drinking a little too much, but if anybody getting hurt, it's me. You two are going first class. Count your blessings. And I really believe that. And then I'd give them that old, what I call the great artist lecture, this fantasy land we live in. I said, now, you, you, you just don't understand, because you don't drink. You just don't understand. My wife drinks normally. She has since she's 12 years old. But to an alcoholic, one drink is not drinking. At any rate, you don't understand. If you've read your history and cultural books, you'll realize that most of the great artists were heavy, heavy drinkers and probably alcoholics. <clears throat> and I'd go through the list. Vincent van Gogh cut off his ear drunk, Edgar Allan Poe, Ernest Hemingway, and as I told you, I was a two-bit trumpet player, and I'd go into the musicians. <laughs> uh, Stephen Foster, the great composer who died at 34, and I'd get into the trumpet players, Dick Biderback and Bunny Berrigan and all these great people. And in one sentence, I would raise myself from the level of a two-bit trumpet player up with the other. I'd say, we artists, we artists, Al Marley and Vincent Van Gogh and Bunny Bergen, we may drink a little too much, but we live. And that's the difference. We live in depth. And you two, my wife and daughter, you are existing. And that is the explanation. Now, you can imagine how that went over. But at any rate, that second drink wouldn't stay down. I'd go to the war college. Being a member of the faculty, I was allowed to park up near the building, so no logistical problem at the 10.30 coffee break. I'd sneak out the side door for a couple shots of vodka out of that bottle I kept in the glove compartment for emergencies. And, of course, every day was an emergency. This got me through until noon. 
straight to the officers club. We had a beautiful little tavern in the basement of the Fort McNair officers club. Smokey the bartender knew me well. He'd see me come in the side door. By the time I got to the to the uh, bar, a double Gibson waiting. My lunch consisted of double Gibsons. <clears throat> no solid food. Solid food was out of the question. The last year of my drinking, my nutritional intake consisted of a concoction of half metrical and half vodka, which I would slice into the schedule late in the afternoon or early evening. They'll get rid of this food requirement, get on with a good drinking. 2.30 coffee break at the War College, more vodka out of the glove compartment, dash home at 4.30 to beat the traffic, sit in front of the idiot box, grab a bottle, and drink myself into oblivion. That was my day. That was what my wife and daughter were putting up with for a husband and a father. And I remember sitting in front of that idiot box, not caring or being concerned with what was on the, the TV, pouring that booze down because I couldn't face reality. I was afraid to get sober. I knew if I got sober, I'd have to start thinking about this booze problem. And subconsciously, I accepted the fact that I was a slave. But I didn't want to face it. As long as I kept pouring that booze down, I wouldn't have to think. I wouldn't have to face this thing. But I realized that my life was devoted, programmed around a bottle of booze. My was constantly, my life was preoccupied with the how, where, when of the next drink. I realized that when I got on that podium at the War College, I'd see that clock down there, and I was counting the minutes till I got off that podium so I could get a drink, get out to that car. When I was flying an aircraft, I was flying with people then. I couldn't drink like I did when I was flying alone, always a co-pilot and twin engine. I couldn't drink till I landed. I remember counting the minutes till I could land and get to that, that, uh, car for some more booze, and my life was continually preoccupied with the how, where, when of the next drink, and I knew it. I knew it deep down, but I wouldn't accept it. I was living to drink because I had to drink to live. And that's one horrible squirrel cage that finds oneself in. <clears throat> and my wife talked to me one day, said, I'm going to call A. I said, go ahead and call him. And she called AA, and they said, we can help your husband if he wants to stop drinking. And she said, don't you want to stop, Hal? I know you can. You stopped six years ago in San Francisco all by yourself. You can stop if you want to. And I said, honey, I don't know whether I can or not. And even if I could, I don't think I want to, because every friend I have drinks. Everywhere we go, there's booze. And there I was, facing that horrible dilemma that every alcoholic faces, if and when he faces that moment of truth. In the farthest stretches of my imagination, I couldn't picture a happy life without booze. On the other hand, I was drinking around the clock, drinking myself into oblivion every night, and that wasn't the answer either. What to do? I couldn't live with it. I couldn't live without it. A horrible dilemma. I tried to stop drinking on my own, but I couldn't. I was too far down the ladder. I couldn't do it. I tried real hard. My wife finally talked me into turning myself into <clears throat> military hospital. The general officer called me in just the day before we decided to go to the hospital. My boss, a very kind, understanding gentleman, <clears throat> he called me in and said, sit down, Hal. He said, will you look at yourself? And I looked at myself. This was 1964. He said, I remember 
when we first together in the Pentagon during the 50s, that you were one of the best-dressed Air Force officers of the Pentagon. Look at yourself now. And I looked at myself for the first time, <clears throat> and my shoes hadn't been shined in a couple of days. I had on a shirt that had been obviously worn for two days. My uniform wasn't cleanly pressed the way it used to be. And I used to be in the old days, I was a clothes horse. I'd have had my uniforms handmade, hand-stitched since I'd been a captain. I was proud of that uniform. I was really vain. Male vanity is worse in terms of that Air Force uniform. My shoes were shined, a clean shirt every day, suit pressed at least every third or fourth day, spotless. And here I was, sitting there in his office that morning, and I suddenly realized for the first time that booze had replaced that male vanity and that uniform that I'd loved so much all those years. He said, Hal, something's happened to you over the years. I don't know what it is, but it's too much. He said, your conduct here, and said, you know what I'm talking about, and I knew he was talking about. <clears throat> he said, we protected you. You've gotten by with it, but you're going to get in trouble. You've got 25 good years. I suggest that you put in for retirement and get your pension before you get in trouble, and we have to take that pension away and court-martial you for drunk on duty, drunk flying. He said, I suggest you sign these retirement papers, which I just happen to have made out here on my desk, <clears throat> and uh, get with it. And I did. And here I was in the hospital, having signed my retirement papers. <clears throat> and I'd been there for a while, 30 days, and the booze had gotten out of my system. I started thinking a little bit. I couldn't figure out what had happened. What had happened to that beautiful career I had planned? What happened to that beautiful family? Here the Air Force was kicking me out. I was 49 years old. My wife and daughter hadn't left yet, but they'd let me know they stood all they could stand. What the hell had happened? And I couldn't figure it out. I knew booze. I was being magnanimous. I knew booze had a little to do with it, but I was still too conceited, too self-centered to admit that little bottle of booze had me beat. I had to find another scapegoat. And I thought and thought and thought about this, and I finally figured it out. The booze had a little to do with it, but that wasn't it. I could handle that booze when I needed to. Something had gone wrong up here in the thinking mechanism. There was no sane man in his right mind, would drink away the opportunities the Air Force had given to me to drink away a beautiful family, the wife and daughter that I had. No sane man would do that. Something had happened. I was a little crazy. Not crazy crazy like he was in Big Spring, but, you know, <clears throat> still functioning. Something had gone wrong up here. I demanded to see a psychiatrist because I respected the profession of psychiatry. And I thought if I'd get a hold of a good psychiatrist and tell him the truth, and I was going to tell him the truth as I saw it, he could unravel this mechanism or ravel it back up or whatever he's supposed to do and get that thinking mechanism back on the track. And I could go back to drinking like I used to in the good old days. And they sent me a psychiatrist. I was in a military hospital. <clears throat> and this psychiatrist <clears throat> turned out to be a young just graduated from Columbia Medical School in uh, New York City, young psychiatrist serving his two years in the military, and somewhere along the line he'd picked up some knowledge that few psychiatrists had in those days. And I told him, I said, Doc, Dr. Nuremberg, God bless him, New York City, still practicing up there. I said, Doc, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to 
exactly wh- how much I drink and why I drink. I got this whole thing figured out. I've been here in the hospital for a month now. Got this whole thing figured out. I'm going to save you a lot of couch time and uh, help you along with your analysis. And I said, number one, I told him how much I drank a quarter booze, over a quarter booze a day for years. But number two, I figured out why I drink. Number one, I drink because my wife doesn't understand me. She's a little Peruvian girl from Lima, different culture, different religion, different background. Besides that, she doesn't drink. And number two, the Air Force doesn't understand me. That's the real reason, Doc. <clears throat> and I explained to the good doctor that I, has, well, I was one of those overeducated drunks, as Clancy pointed out. I had spent eight years of my life at Columbia University, and Columbia's a very generous institution. They'd given me four degrees, a bachelor's, two masters, and a doctorate. <clears throat> and I explained this to the good doctor. I said, look, Doc, it's a matter of record. My educational background, my intellectual prowess, it's a matter of record. And in spite of that, the Air Force obviously doesn't understand me because they haven't promoted me in 15 years. And this is the truth. I had been a lieutenant colonel in the regular Air Force, a permanent grade lieutenant colonel, for 15 years. And I couldn't figure this out. <clears throat> As I said, I was one of those overeducated drunks. And, uh, you know, there's nothing worse. Too smart to be an alcoholic. As I look back on it, if I'd been 2% smarter, I don't think I'd have made the program. But thank God I wasn't. <clears throat> As Clancy mentioned, <clears throat> I was a senior lieutenant colonel. And I remember sitting down at the McKinley Air Force. We used to take a whiskey run out of Washington, go down to Bermuda to pick up that cheap booze, spend the weekend, come back. And the crew would go out on the beach, on Belbo Beach or something else. I'd go to my favorite watering spa, <clears throat> the Swizzle Inn, and run by an English gentleman I'd known for years, and swizzle it up all Saturday afternoon while they were on the beach. And Saturday night at the officer's club, I remember one night, sitting with another Air Force lush. In those days, the Air Force sent out an annual publication listing the regular corps, the elite, the regular officers, by name, rank, serial number, and so forth. No reservists, no National Guard, the elite corps. <clears throat> and by looking through this book, you could find where you stood in terms of regular rank and promotion list. And we figured out one night, it took us about 3 o'clock in the morning to figure it out over the bar. If 833 selected officers died that night, I'd be chief of staff of the United States Air That's a pretty senior lieutenant colonel, ladies and gentlemen. So this psychiatrist, Dr. Nuremberg, God bless him, he listened to this jazz for 30 days. He was a very patient psychiatrist, thank God. And finally, after 30 days of this, he said, Hal, you're not psychotic, you're an alcoholic. And I, as a psychiatrist, can't help you with your booze problem. But there is an organization called Alcoholics Anonymous that can help you. I suggest you go to them. So I came in this beautiful fellowship ten-odd years ago. And uh, here I'm sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, remember, I was sober physically in San Francisco six years earlier. What's the difference? As you all know, this is a threefold disease, mental, physical, and spiritual. San Francisco, on my own, 
still in the driver's seat, still being the big shot, still running the show, I'd been able to cope with the physical aspects of this disease, but I had not been able to cope with the mental and spiritual aspects. And that's what this program has given me. And of course, it's step three. When I studied this step three, I was an avid reader. I read everything I could find. And I thought I'd taken step three, read everything I could find about it. I remember reading Reverend Sam Shoemaker. He died the previous year to my coming in, but the grapevine had printed the 12 steps as I understand them by Reverend Sam Shoemaker. I'll never forget what he said about step three, that you've got to make a decision. This is positive action, the first positive thing you've done. Steps one and two serve acceptance. But here you've got to take positive, be positive in making a decision. You don't think about it and postpone it, procrastinate. You make a decision. <clears throat> and to quote him, he said, you can ooze into booze, but you can't ooze into God. That impressed me. So I thought I had made a decision. I made that decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I made that decision, and I was implementing that decision a day at a time, as I thought I was doing. And I was pretty sure I'd taken step three, and I was practicing it. We had a, <clears throat> I was in New York, step meeting one night on step three, and I proclaimed to the assemblage that uh, what a beautiful program it was. I think I had two months, three months, and how this program was working beautifully. It had the good things happened to me from the very first day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. It just just kept on getting better and better. My retirement came through, and they gave me things I never even thought I'd get in terms of eligibility for this and that and the other. At any rate, all these good things were happening. It seemed every week something else good would happen. At the time, I was talking about all these coincidences that were happening, and that's what I thought they were, coincidences. And I was in AA quite a long while, so a little girl one day explained to me that Coincidence? I said, no, Hal, that's not a coincidence. You know what a coincidence really is? And I said, no. So the coincidence is a little miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. So that explained these good things that started happening to me from the day I came in this program. So <clears throat> I thought step three, I really had it. I made the decision doing all these things. And I explained to these people how oh, everything was going to great. I was doing exactly what you told me. I was staying away from that drink a day at a time, going to a meeting every night, and God was taking care of everything else. I'd heard that, let go, let God, turn it over, turn it over. And I proclaimed that's exactly what I was doing, and all I had to do was stay away from that drink a day at a time and go to a meeting. And the good Lord was taking care of everything. After the meeting... <clears throat> One of the old-timers came over and said, Hal, things have been going great for you. That's fine. But I'm afraid you haven't read that third step quite correctly. So let's go over it again. said, it doesn't say turn your will and your life over to God. It says turn your will and your life over to the care of God. That you've got to do more than just stop drinking and go to meetings. And he explained, God bless him, that this was a program of action. And I was the action officer. He said, you'll understand this in military terminology. You are the action officer. 
He explained to me that God did the impossible, but I had to do the possible. He told me it was all right to get on my knees at night and pray, but I had to get on my feet in the morning and hustle. A program of action. He told me about Bill Wilson writing in 12 and 12. The joy of living is the theme, and action is the key word. And he explained <clears throat> about the difference between action and activity. He said, now you'll go to these groups, and you'll see a lot of activity. Cleaning up the ashtrays, setting up the chairs, making the coffee. So that's great. Now get involved right away, start in on that. That's fine, that's basic. But that's not the action that we're talking about. The action we're talking about is starting at step one, going up through these steps, just the way they were written, one through twelve, and working these things the best you can to get the twelve step, the twelfth step, the graduation step, the commencement step. So now you don't graduate from AA, you graduate into living the AA way of life. It's the graduation step, it's the commencement step. You start, you commence practicing these things in all your affairs. But it's a program of action. You've got to go up through those steps. And he explained to me what Bill had said about the steps, about <clears throat> they looked like perfection, and they were perfection. And not to be upset because I couldn't work them 100%. And he quoted what Bill says there in the 12 and 12 about these are perfect ideals. The last 11 steps. Bill says there in the 12 and 12 that step number one is the only step that we can observe and work 100%. The only step. And Bill has written there that the other 11 steps are perfect ideals. They're goals towards which I'm supposed to work. Knowing that I'm not a saint, we don't look for spiritual perfection, we look for spiritual progress. Knowing that I'm not going to complete these other 11 steps 100% ever, but I got a lifetime to work toward completing them. And this made a lot of sense to me. So <clears throat> instead of turning it all over to God, I turned it over to the care of God. And I formed a partnership with God, God and Alcoholics Anonymous. They're my senior partners. And I'm the junior partner. And it's in all partnerships. The senior partners do most of the brain work, the heavy work, the long-range planning. But I can see and talk to my senior partners at any time. I don't have to go through any telephone or any secretary. They're there available at all times, and I use them a lot, believe me. They do the long-range planning, but I'm read in on these long-range plans. I know that this has to happen out here, <clears throat> this has to happen out there. I know there are deadlines to be made, but I'm not responsible for those end results way out there. I don't project myself anymore way out in front. My responsibility in this partnership is to implement these long-range plans a day at a time. And sometimes a day is too much. An hour at a time, five minutes or a minute. But the point is I break it down into little chunks I can manage. Some days things seem to be going up the wall and I can't do a damn thing but sit there and bite the bullet. But you've taught me how to do that too. You've taught me so much. There's a little phrase when things go up the wall, things are too hectic. A little psalm from the Bible that I've seen many times, but I never had any meaning until you explained it to me. A little psalm that says, Be still and know that I am God. 
And many times when everything seems to get hectic, and you know in the federal government in Washington there are many times when things get being hectic, sit there and repeat this little psalm, be still and know that I am God, what, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and everything seems to get back in proper perspective. I've learned so much from you wonderful people in this partnership. I go to that office every morning and I work as though everything depends upon me, but I pray as though everything depends upon God, because for me it does. And it's a beautiful partnership, ladies and gentlemen, and if any of you are having trouble managing your lives, may I suggest you look into this partnership concept. I understand there are a few partnerships open, and the price is right, believe me. In closing, I'd like to go back to, way back to the mountains of North Carolina. I was 15 years old, and I was reading those Saturday Evening Post and the Police Gazette and Collier's and all those magazines. And it seemed to me there were big things going on up north, a lot of action, New York City and Chicago and all those big cities. And there down in the mountains of North Carolina, it seemed to me people were existing. We weren't living. And up north they were living. They were doing things. And I wanted some of this action. Maybe that was alcoholic thinking of age 15. At any rate, <clears throat> I got a musical scholarship to Culver Military Academy, which is a rich man's school. And I hadn't, didn't have a penny. I told you we were bankrupt and my father's gone. Didn't have a penny, but thanks to that little trumpet, I got a full musical scholarship to Culver. And I went to Culver Military Academy, <clears throat> looking for this thing called living. When does life begin? Because life hadn't begun down in those mountains of Carolina. And I was going to find this thing called life. When does life begin? I went to Culver, and I'll never forget the summer, I think, of 31. I went to summer school and winter school both, naval school in the summer. At any rate, one beautiful summer night, <clears throat> some of you old enough to remember, Hal Kemp and his orchestra were playing at the Black Hawk restaurant. <clears throat> and I got some little blonde cutie pie and went into there and went to that an evening at Cal Kemp's at the Black Hawk restaurant. And brother, I finally found this thing I'd been looking for for 15 or 16 years. Life had begun. I'd found this thing called living and I had started living and life was perfect. And it was. It was the greatest evening I'd ever spent in my life up until that point. But unfortunately, I closed the Black Hawk at 3 o'clock in the morning, and the curtain comes down, and here it is, I'm back to reality. But I got a little taste of this thing called life. Went on to Columbia University, and I told you I worked my through with a dance band, Europe every summer, living up in those capital cities of pre-World War II Europe, Budapest, Vienna, Paris, beautiful, wonderful living, and booze is a basic ingredient in gracious living. Life was wonderful. And in my second or third year at Columbia, I've forgotten which, my English professor, a gentleman named Walter B. Pitkin, Maurice will remember this, I'm sure, wrote a book called Life Begins at Forty. And this was a book of the month club selection. And I think they made a Broadway hit to take off, Life Begins at 840. <clears throat> it was a very popular book, conversation piece. And I was one of his students, and I read it for two purposes. Number one, if you want an A in the class, you read your professor's book and give him a pat on the back, tell him what a great author he is. 
But number two, the real reason, this was life begins at 40, and I was, I think, 19 at the time. I thought if I could find out the secrets, I wouldn't have to wait till I was 40. I'd pick up an extra 22 years, see? No, zoom into this thing. Start living. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. <clears throat> As I said, I went to Europe every summer searching for this thing called living, and I'd find it here and there. I'll never forget one night outside Vienna, up on the Cobenzl, beautiful outdoor restaurant overlooking Vienna. I was introduced to Bulo, that beautiful champagne punch with floating something other gardenias. And again, I found this thing called living, the most beautiful three hours I ever spent in my life. But that got over, too. I found little spots here and there of this wonderful thing called living, but I could never get to that plateau I was looking for, where I knew I had it made, where I knew the answers. World War II came along, and for the next 25 years, thanks to the United States Air Force, all over the world, with the exception of Red China, searching for this thing called living. When does life begin? And again, I found a little here and there, but never that plateau, never that place where I knew I had the answers, where I knew I had it made. Still searching, still searching. I found there in San Francisco, 45 minutes on Sunday morning, but that's all. And I had to land back to reality. In 1963, the year before I came into the fellowship, Walter B. Pitkin, Jr., the son of this professor who happened to be a classmate of mine, he wrote a book, Life Begins at 50. And I grabbed this, reading it up, madly searching, still searching. I was 49 at the time. I figured I could waste a year and jump in ahead. And again, searching, searching for this thing called living. When does life begin? Nope, couldn't find the answers there. I came to this beautiful fellowship, and I attended my first Blackstone retreat run by a gentleman named Tom Lovern, who doesn't mind me breaking his anonymity, who became my sponsor. And I heard Tom standing on that podium that Sunday morning at Blackstone, and I'll never forget it as long as I live, said, ladies and gentlemen, life begins when you have peace of mind, peace with your fellow man, and peace with the God of your understanding. Life begins when you have peace of mind, peace with your fellow man, and peace with the God of your understanding. And I suddenly realized that there it was, what I'd been looking for for 49 years all over this world. And there was Tom Lovern, an instrumentality of God and Alcoholics Anonymous, ever saw one, handing it to me. It was all wrapped up in a thing called AA, everything I'd ever been searching for, and here it was. And ladies and gentlemen, I started living that Sunday morning, and I haven't stopped. And I was warned about this pink cloud, cloud nine, or whatever you want to call it, because I was happy from the start. <clears throat> and I was warned, now watch out, watch out, watch out. But some old-timers called me aside, Robbie Robinson, God bless his soul. Robbie said, Hal, you don't ever have to get off this pink cloud if you don't want to. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the way it's been for me for over ten years now. Now, don't misunderstand me. This pink cloud I'm on is not one of those wispy little things that gets burned off by the morning sun. My cloud has a very hard core called the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we've gone through some pretty rough storms over these 10 years. I'm sure we've got some rough ones to face in the future. But by sticking on this cloud and sticking real close to you people, we haven't had any trouble. And ladies and gentlemen, I think as long as I stick close to you and stay away from that booze, I'm not going to have to get off this beautiful cloud I've been on for ten years. 
So when I say I'm a grateful alcoholic, maybe you understand now what I mean. Deeply and eternally grateful to all you wonderful people in this blessed fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you very much for listening, and may God bless you.